Hey guys, welcome back to The Real Estate Monopoly. My name is Kerwin. And my name is Kenneth. And this is The Real Estate Monopoly. We are the Donis Brothers. And today we have an awesome guest and we're very excited for the episode. Kenny, how you doing? Just I feel in. great, man. I feel great. How about yes. yourself? Really close. My mom made banana pudding and it's almost Friday, so it's a good day. <laughs> Let's get into it. Vina, thank you so much for being here. Vina Jetty, please say hey to the audience. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And send me some banana pudding. <laughs> We will, we will. I love it. I love it. Well, Vina Jetty is the founding partner of Vive Funds, and she's um, a unique, it's a, it's a unique commercial real estate firm that specializes in curating conservative opportunities for investors. Vina brought, brings a diverse and dynamic perspective to targeting, acquiring, managing, and operating assets using best practices combining with cutting-edge technologies. And she's also investing in markets such as Atlanta, the Carolinas, and I believe Texas. But Vina... Yes. I missed anything. Please give us a brief overview of your background leading up to right around the time you got into real estate. Yes. So first it's Vive Funds. Five. Rhymes with five. It's like super boring. It's not as exciting as everyone wants it to be. So uh, it's Vive Funds. And then, yeah, so I am a large multifamily owner operator. Uh, We do target, like you said, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas. We also look at South Carolina, Florida, and Arizona currently. Um, with a plan to maybe roll out one or two new markets in the coming year. We'll see. Uh, we like to go really deep into our markets before mm-hmm. we actually roll them out. Um, but we focus on class B value-add assets. Uh, today in my portfolio, I've transacted on over $800 million worth of multifamily. Um, so I have one trick. I try to do that trick really well. Uh, and I focus only on the value-add multifamily space. Mm-hmm. And right now our buy criteria, for example, is not just our markets, but also we look for like 200 plus units and 75 million and up on each asset. That is awesome. And can you walk us through maybe how you got into real estate? I know your parents were in real estate. And so you have a really interesting uh, kind of background because like when I was in college, I was exposed to commercial real estate. And I think that's where you got into the corporate side of it. But that's the only side that we were taught. And I think you had like that interesting background because you were exposed to the entrepreneurial side of it before you went corporate. Yeah. So my mom is actually like a really successful real estate investor. And so I grew up in this world. Um, it's something that my sister and I were both exposed to. My parents never shied away from, you know, taking us to these like boring closings and walkthroughs <laughs> and due diligence. You know, we did all of that, not knowing what it meant or, you know, cause I was like seven at the time or five and we didn't know, but my dad traveled like 40, 45 weeks out of the year. Um, so my mom was almost like a de facto single mom because mm-hmm. she didn't, you know, my or her husband was gone all the time. And so, um, she would bring my sister and I with her to do what she needed to do. And so, um, that was how, like my first foray into the real estate world. And, you know, I always helped out in the family business when I was in high school. And as I got a little bit older, um, I graduated college when I was like 20 years old with my degree in finance and, you know, thought I knew everything and was going to be like an adult all on my own and not work for the family business. And so I got a job in corporate real estate and I worked on a lot of commercial assets, um, ultimately left in 2012 to start investing for myself. Um, And that's really where I unintentionally started this business that has just grown massively over the Mm -hmm. years. And, you know, it's been a great opportunity and I just love what I do. So I don't want to stop doing it anytime soon. So that's kind of where I am today. I love it. That's an awesome uh, backstory, but I'm just curious to, you know, ask you kind of, so a lot of people, when they kind of 
I wouldn't say that you were necessarily forced growing up to, um, you know, participate in real estate with your parents, but a lot of times I would, when- I would say I was forced. <laughs> okay. So we can, we can, we can assume that you were forced, right? So a lot of people, when they're forced to do something that their parents, you know, kind of yeah. are doing when they're growing up, they yeah. kind of despise that when they grow <laughs> up and they kind of never yeah. even want to, you know, go into it or even do it again. What about real estate made you want to go back? Well, I- I think I didn't, I didn't think I was going to do real estate. Really. I thought I was going to end up in like I banking or something financial yeah. adjacent. Yeah. Um, but I was like born an entrepreneur. I was just, I'm not a worker bee. I'm not someone, I don't make a good employee. Like no one should ever really hire me, uh, <laughs> but I love having my own business and I am good at operating my own business. I'm good at taking on calculated risks. Um, and I, I like it, right. I like working for myself and, you know, there's that saying an entrepreneur will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours for somebody else. Like that's me. I'm happy to work 80 or hundred hours for myself, not willing to work 40 hours for somebody Mm -hmm. else. Um, so I think it, it, real estate is such a big field, right? Like if someone's like, oh, I'm in real estate. Like, what does that mean? Do you buy notes? Do you buy debt? Are you a contractor? Are you a realtor? Are you in private equity? Like, are you a developer? There's so many different ways to make money within just real estate. And so um, what I liked about it was not only was it very tax efficient, um, which is actually the reason that I left corporate America was to realize more tax efficiency by being a full-time real estate professional. Um, so that was one, it's tax efficient Two, it cash flows. It's not three, it's not correlated to the stock market in the sense that the stock market can be down and real estate can still be doing well. Um, you know, there's like a lot of, it's tangible. They're not making any more land. So, you know, you can be invested in something that's tangible. Um, and then, you know, I also would say too, I like being able to have control over what we're doing. Um, I like to have the strategic vision and input. So, um, yeah, I don't know how I ended up like going into real estate because I really didn't think I was going to, but (laughs) I love it. it. (laughs) That's awesome. And so I believe, you know, in the corporate world, you were in commercial real estate and then your first like uh, properties that you began to acquire were actually smaller properties. Uh, Is that right? I find it so interesting because like you went from knowing what a large commercial property, I'm kind of learning the insides of it. And then you went small, but eventually obviously you ended up going big. So was that always the angle once you decided to go on your own? No, um, I actually thought that I was just going to kind of do what my parents did. So my parents were heavily invested into the residential side. And so, and they were long-term holders. So I kind of thought that's what I would do too. Cause like, I know it, it's familiar, it's easy you know, relative to other things. Cause I had an easy inroad. Right. Yeah. Um, but I quickly realized that you really can't get to scale in single family. Um, I couldn't buy 400 single family homes in one day at that time. It's funny because like now we're looking at buying entire neighborhoods of single family homes. So we're kind of reverting a little bit backward, but at that time that just wasn't, uh, something that we had feasibility to do. And so, really the way to get to scale was to move to larger scale commercial assets. And I really love the residential aspect of real estate because I think, you know, people always need a place to live, no matter what the market's doing, what's happening, they always are going to need a place to live. And I really love that we're able to invest into and revitalize the communities that we buy. Um, So it's not just 
you know, being a landlord, it's also mm-hmm. being able to better the lives and the the homes of so many people. That's important to us. Absolutely. And I know you're, now you're today, you're like a powerhouse capital raiser, but um, I've heard, I read, a, you, you shared a story about your first capital raise and how it was a little more of a challenge than you thought it would be. I'd love it if you could dive into that because I think that would oh, kind of show God. the growth and the transformation yeah. through the adversity, you know? Yeah. So the first deal I ever raised capital for was easily the hardest that I've ever worked on. Um, I had to raise $1.2 million and it was a six week raise. And I cried myself to sleep every night thinking that we were not going to get the deal done. Um, my husband thought I was a crazy person when I told him I'm like, we have to sell your car. We have to liquidate our 401ks. I have to sell our house. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, I got us into this pickle. I'm sorry. I ruined our family. I don't know what to say. And he was like, okay, we'll figure it out. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert is we did, but that was easily the hardest raise. And the first raise is always going to be mm-hmm. the hardest. You don't know what you don't know yet. Um, as you, as time goes on, as you get better processes and systems, you get better at making the right connections. You get better at finding better deals. Mm-hmm. It becomes much easier to raise capital. That's awesome. And I believe you're partnered with Ellie Perlman. Is that her name? Awesome. Yes. I'd love to know. She's like someone I've followed for a while as well. I've read a lot of her Forbes articles and yes. I, I listened to one of the podcasts you did and you mentioned that you're partners with her. And I was like, well, that's small space. It really is. Yeah, it um, so is. I'd love to know, like, how did you guys meet? And yeah, guys very small world. So she and I met several years ago. We actually both spoke at the same conference there's just not that many women yeah. in the space, right? And especially not many women that are young, like in their thirties. Mm-hmm. And so um, we met at a conference and afterward, you know, I was like just talking to her and trying to understand like, okay, what are you doing? Like, where are your strengths? You know, like the mm-hmm. informal dating process of <laughs> yeah. like meeting new business partners, right? And so we just really hit it off there. Um, and you know, like you said, she is, so she runs a company called Blue Lake Capital. So Mm -hmm. we're JV partners and she, what I love about her and working with her is we both from the beginning shared the same philosophy of investor first mentality, which people say that, but in practice, it sometimes doesn't actually happen. And so for me, that was like paramount to my entire business model. And so I've done several deals with her now. I've had the absolute pleasure of watching her not just, she's a phenomenal operator, but not just watching her operate, but her business acumen is amazing. And I think um, it's really nice because she has a lot of strengths that are my weakness and vice versa. And so I think together we both kind of like rub off on each other a little bit, but the core values of our companies are the same. And so she's amazing to work with. No, we can agree. We can relate. Like Kenneth is the the underwriter, Jeffrey, my other twin brother is like the uh, investor relations relations, and I'm in the marketing. And so we each have our own strengths that we really, uh, I guess, complement. And so I would love to know, can you expand uh, what's your strength and how does she complement that and vice versa? Yeah. So my hands down favorite part of any deal we do is absolutely the capital side. Um, So strategically looking at how we're stacking our capital, um, what our investor relations looks like. That's something that I like to kind of closely manage. Um, I also handle a lot of our tax and legal strategy. So my like strength is actually in deal structure. So I work really closely with our securities team, our securities attorney um, and our tax professionals to make sure that we're maximizing our ability to operate the asset. Um, 
once we, oh, and initially out of the gate, you know, I, I, we both touch underwriting. We both look at underwriting. Um, obviously there are teams that underwrite initially. If it makes sense, then we'll both look at it. We'll fine tune. We'll kind of talk about strategically how it works. Um, so we touch every part of the process, but it's just more at a higher level now. Um, but the investor relations side is where I really still dive down. Um, and then post-close operationally, um, we're both constantly talking about like, hey, this is what we need to have happen. Are we on target? We're both tracking to pro forma numbers. Um, I handle a lot of the post-close uh, investor experience. So um, when distributions go out, how they go out, how communication goes out, what, um, what we're going to implement to make investors feel like, okay, this is a really great experience. Um, you know, our portals and our softwares, mm -hmm. all of that um, is something that I kind of manage and take the lead on that side of it. But, um, yeah, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, we're, we're both a, a to Z operational. So we really like divide and conquer most of the time is yeah. it's easy. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's it's so lovely when you see uh, just the, especially when you meet people, obviously I had my brother, so I kind of knew them all my life, but yeah. um, just looking from the outside in, when you meet someone that kind of matches uh, yeah. exactly what you don't necessarily like to do. And so it's just a great partnership, but you did that's touch cool. on, uh, you know, like software and, and yeah. I'm assuming systems, your yeah. company has grown very quickly. Um, what kind of process and systems have you kind of implemented and any secrets that you would give uh, in order <laughs> to kind of scale a company as you have yeah. Um, well, we haven't implemented enough systems. Um, I wish, so that's one thing I tell new investors, especially is no matter how small you are, invest time and money and energy into setting up systems out of the gate. It will save you so much heartache in the future because we have now spent countless hours getting our systems retroactively in place um, and keep an SOP for everything. So have a standard operating procedure for everything you do um, down to how you respond to emails so that it's cohesive, transitions are easier. Um, but yeah, we so we have a lot of systems in, in place. We do use an investor portal. Um, we're actually getting ready to roll out a new one. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, we also have like our automated messages. We have timelines and checklists and we use Airtable and Excel for everything that we do. That's awesome. And earlier you touched how you and your partner shared the same sentiment that investor first approach. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd love to know, like, and I mean, I know you guys emphasize communication, but in general, like yeah. what makes you guys stand out in that process and how are you guys providing that white glove service for your investors? Yeah, I think um, one, we are very high touch with our investors. So our investors always have an opportunity to reach out to us and communicate directly with us. Now, obviously they'll like sometimes ask me things that I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, but that's more stuff like that's on the administrative mm -hmm. side, right? So like, hey, can you send me a copy of my K1 from 2020? No problem. I have no idea how to do this, but I know the person who can, you know, so like things like that, or, Hey, can you meet up on whatever day? Then like, I don't know. I'm not allowed to schedule things on my calendar. Cause then I don't show up because I overbook. And so I'm not allowed to anymore. Um, so, you know, like things like that, we still send to like our proper teams, but if it's something strategic or they have a concern or question or compliment, whatever it is, um, they can always reach us directly. Uh, so I too have a partner who is my sister as well. Oh, so nice. Yeah. So she, you know, she handles a lot of our like marketing outreach side, but, um, I think we, one it's the quality of our projects is absolutely our differentiating yes. factor. It's not, 
any one thing other than we are very strict about our projects. Two, we co-invest with our investors mm -hmm. significantly. So our general partners on any given deal, we have anywhere from five to 20% of the capital stack. So we're very much aligned with our investors. And we really do, we put it in writing that our investors, if they're not reaching their uh, pro forma returns, then we as sponsors can waive, reduce, or defer any of our fees to make sure that they're being made whole. Um, and I think that that's something that's a little different than what mm -hmm. other sponsors do, but we're, and our attorneys hate that we did that, but we were like, listen, the reality is whether you put it in writing or not, we're going to do this mm -hmm. because it's the right thing to do. We want to take care of our investors, but there's, so there's no point for us to not put our money where our mouth is. Let's put it in black and white. And so our investors really like that. Um, we really focus on retention in our investors. So we focus on reinvestment rates. We Because I want to know that they are happy and that's why they're continuing to invest. About 80 to 90% of our investors are reinvested into our deals across two or more projects. Um, and then word of mouth referrals, like that means more to me than someone writing me a check because I don't know about you guys, but for me, like it's one thing for me to lose my money. It's another thing for me mm -hmm. to lose someone his money. And that's a responsibility that we take really, really seriously. We don't take that lightly. Oh, I love that. And that's very adamant and very clear. And like, I, I know you guys only do about one to two deals a year. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's really awesome to that. Cause that's going to show like, I'm sure I don't even know how many deals you guys are looking at, but Kenneth's <laughs> the underwriter. So he can probably yeah, build so off. Of I, this. I definitely understand that you guys probably look at a ton of deals and um, you can easily get shiny object syndrome and kind of think that, oh, you know, this deal might work, but it kind of slightly out of your, your uh, investment yeah. criteria. And, you know, just because there's not that many deals that actually fit. So no, it's, it's about it. being very, very strict. So um, I did want to ask, how are you guys like balancing being conservative in your underwriting while also kind of being optimistic about it? Because at the end of the day, like you're still taking a risk and you have to make some kind of assumptions, you know, and, and winning deals, because obviously, you know, yes. there's, yeah. there's that too. <laughs> yeah. So um, the reality is, is we're not good at balancing it. That's why we're only doing two, three deals a year. Um, and to be completely fair, if it doesn't fit our strict criteria and our standards, we just would do no deals in the year. Um, and that's one thing that's really nice about JVing with Ellie is both of us have a commitment to our standards and our, our excellence. And because we invest so heavily alongside our investors, we can't yeah. afford to just go into any <laughs> deal that may or may not be a good deal because we put garbage numbers into underwriting and got garbage numbers out, right? Like anybody yeah. can make any deal look great, whether or yeah. not you execute is really the question. Um, so I think that we, we don't balance mm -hmm. being conservative with doing deals. <laughs> we really just opt for conservative. And if you look at enough deals, eventually one will stick. So we're yeah. probably looking at maybe 400 deals before we have one that comes through, but that's what our investors rely on us for. When they see the Vive brand, they know it's met our underwriting criteria and our underwriting standard. They know that we're not fee-driven. We are looking for the deal that's really going to do well for them and mm -hmm. for us. Um, so that's the answer to how yeah. we are conservative. Uh, but the question about how we're winning deals, we're also not doing that very well. Uh, <laughs> mainly because we're just not willing to go above what our underwriting is saying we can tolerate. Um, you know, if the price is 
80 million, the price is 80 million. It's not 81 million. It's not 80.5. Mm-hmm. It's 80 million. And, you know, I've walked away. Oh, this is like many years ago, but I, we had a deal. I'm trying to remember if it was, it was either 15 million or 13 million. I can't remember which, but I think it was 15 million. And so we were at 15 million and there was another group competing. We were like top two and the broker came back and said, Hey, um, the other buyer is willing to pay 15 million, 25,000 and take the deal down. But the buy or the seller really likes you guys and doesn't have confidence in this other group to close, but they think you can deliver on it. So, you know, if you come up to 15 million, 25,000, the deal is yours. And I was like, well, it sounds like a surety of clothes is going to cost your seller 25 grand because we're at 15 million and we actually were not awarded the deal. They did go with the other uh, buyer. The other buyer did not close the deal. So they came back to us and I was like, my price actually changed now. I don't think we're going to pay 15 million anymore, but you know, it's just being willing to walk away from a deal, especially it's hard once you put in so much time and energy and effort and due diligence, and you've spent dollars on it. It's hard to walk away from a deal, but we out of the gate, look at it as the cost of doing business. Absolutely. I love that. And uh, I did want to like, have you expand on it because I, I, in the past, I've heard you kind of explain how you guys aren't necessarily the most competitive on pricing. Like obviously yeah, sometimes you might yeah. be like millions off. And if you want to touch on that, that'd be funny and awesome to, to, to just get some context, but yeah, you know, you're being competitive when it comes to terms or like, you know, it's more attractive on that side of things. Yeah. And a surety of clothes, like you mentioned, a surety of clothes, that's a, yeah. a huge thing because I mean, I've, I've had a lot of, we, I mean, as a group, we're part of the thing, multifamily group. We've had a lot of deals come back to us because the first buyer couldn't perform or they were just not an easy buyer to work with. So yeah, we'd yeah. definitely love for you to expand on that. Yeah. So we're not, oftentimes we're not the highest bid because, you know, bid doesn't really matter unless you can perform on it. Right. And so there are many times we're not the highest bid. We might be the second or the third highest bid, but where we do compete really well is on terms. Um, so on deals of our size, we're typically competing against institutional funds. And a lot of times they have different timelines and mandates that they have to follow. They have more red tape. We are very agile. So we can make decisions very quick as deal as deals come through. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing is we, we can close fast. Um, so the last couple of deals we've had, um, actually the last two Atlanta deals we closed, we closed those in less than 42 days. And we told them we were already capitalized out of the gate. And that really gave the seller confidence. And we put up hard money day one. We put our money where our mouth is because we've done so much due diligence by the time we're at a best and final round that we already have like a 95% assurity that we're closing this deal. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Um, just because you know the, the deals that you're doing, like you mentioned, they're institutional deals. And I've spoken with many brokers and they kind of, I wouldn't say that they don't like that they hate institutional buyers or larger companies, but it's definitely harder for them to work with them because, you know, one person uh, is going to see the deal and then uh, like four other people have to approve the deal when, you know, in your situation, they can just speak with you. You're the decision maker. You're the one that calls the shots and things like that. So it definitely, you know, it's it's in that case, it just becomes an easier person or company to work with. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think too, like, we're young, so they know that they're going to get a chance to have many bites of the apple because we're going to trade, we're going to keep buying, we're aggressive 
and aggressive in the sense of we're always looking for new deals. We're not like, okay, we're going to like lay back and hang out. Like they know that we're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that makes a huge difference when we're buying assets. Yeah, absolutely. When, I love that. when it comes to institutional capital, I believe you guys are mainly focusing on like retail investors on your capital raises. Is there a reason you're not, you're choosing not to like use institutional funds? Cause I'm sure it would be an option for you at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had discussions with institutional groups. Uh, the challenge that really is in front of us today is we haven't really needed to yet. We are able to capitalize on the retail channels. So I don't, I, I don't <laughs> want to say that we never will, because there will come a mm-hmm. time when we get to enough scale that there's not enough retail capital. Mm-hmm. But to date, that hasn't been an issue. Now, would we look at partnering with institutional funds? Absolutely. You know, they are sophisticated, they're smart, they have processes and systems. Um, it's different than syndicating a deal, though, or raising retail capital, because the private equity we raise, our fee structures are different. And so on the institutional side, you have to be able to adjust to those and you have to be willing to make those different moves. And then they have different regulations that they need to meet. So, you know, their balance sheet has to look a certain way and they may have to rebalance or relever an asset based on the value of it. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different pieces there, but yeah, I mean, it's something we definitely would do in the future. We just haven't needed to yet. Oh, I love that. That's a flex. So yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and that's a good, that's a good problem to have though. Absolutely. I wouldn't say it's a problem at all, honestly. Yeah. Um, I want to place capital though. I want to, <laughs> yeah. want to spend money, but I just don't have anything to spend it on. I love it. I love it. And so an issue that I, I've heard you kind of describe that you sometimes have is going, going with retail investors, especially because you're so conservative. A lot of times other people will like, like, yeah, we have great returns and not touch on any of the risks. And you're obviously, you're offering more like realistic returns and yeah. things that are more. So can you expand on how, expand on that issue of investor education and how you're approaching it and tackling it? Yeah. So I raise my capital in between deals. Once I have a deal, it's too late for me to try to create the relationship, explain the strategy. There's just too much going on. So when we don't have a deal, that's when we really raise our capital by creating those relationships and doing our investor education. Uh, One of the challenges we come across often, right, is when we might be projecting, let's say a 14% IRR on a project, I'll sometimes have an investor or potential investor say, yeah, but you know, there's this like new construction deal in Mobile, Alabama, that is a 23% IRR. That's a better return. And so I always have to remind investors, a pro forma does not mean a guaranteed return mm-hmm. and it's risk adjusted, right? So new development has higher risk. So you should be projecting a higher IRR than what we have in our assets and our deals. Our deals are vanilla. They're boring. We do the same thing over and over and over. We rinse and repeat. We've had great results historically, and we plan to continue under-promising and over-delivering, and that's our model, and that's what we do. And so, yeah, I think that you definitely will always have those competitive risks, but at the same time, I don't want an investor that needs to have a 25% return because they're not going to be happy with my deal if I only produce a 15% return, despite what the stock market is doing, or despite it being a risk adjusted return. Mm -hmm. And so if they're very aggressive, my deal might not be a good fit for them. And I tell investors that all the time, hey, I'm not going to be the only sponsor that you should work with. And I might not even be a good fit for you, depending on what you need and what you're looking for. If your vision and your strategy aligns with ours, then great. I'm happy to have you. But if it doesn't, there's no harm, no foul there. It's just not a good fit. And so um, we turn away 
investors when they are not good fits for us. We just, capital isn't my problem. So mm. I'd rather have an investor that knows and agrees and understands our model. Yeah, absolutely. Another that's flex. that's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> um. So just to touch on that though. So it, it seems like obviously, you know, you obviously you should, everyone should be honest, Um. but communication yeah. seems to be very vital in, you know, your side of things and you yeah. are the investor um, relations mm. portion of your business. You know, we've actually spoken with investors that have gotten fantastic returns, you know, doubling their money in two years, maybe three years, uh, just yeah. phenomenal returns, right? But they were very unhappy with the experience because, you know, uh, just customer, I guess, service or, you know, just speaking with them or not getting their questions answered and just being yeah. out of the blue of what's going on was a big issue. What kind of things do you do to prevent that? And, and how important would you say that uh, communication is when it comes to your your side of things? Yeah. I mean, importance, it's like a 12 out of 10. It's the, it's the most critical thing you do to build long-term relationships and trust with your investors. Right. So, um, I will say we are not great at non-investment related communication. So like, I wish I was that person that could like put together a great newsletter or, or like a blog every week or every month. I'm not good at that. Um, that is definitely not our strength. But what we're really good at is over communicating with investors and not when everything's going well. It's when things are going badly that we over communicate. Right. So COVID is a great example. It was a black swan event. None of us knew how to deal with it. None of us had been through a global pandemic. We didn't know what was going to happen. And I'll actually say this is actually the, one of the biggest mistakes I've made too, is, um, you know, I had wanted to communicate, but we just didn't know what to what say to or say. how to say it. Right. And so there was, there were many discussions about how we discuss this and what we say. And this was when I had other partners, not Ellie, but my mm -hmm. partners were like, no, we're just not going to say anything until we know more. Cause otherwise it'll invite more questions. And then we'll be saying, we don't know. And my gut told me that we need to communicate that we don't know and that we're mm. aware of it and that we're watching and we'll keep you posted. But I think we need to communicate this. And so I got pushed back. Um, and we ultimately waited, like, I can't remember, maybe it was like 60 days or something before addressing it, which is a long time when investors are uncertain and they're scared. And I wish I had followed kind of what my gut instinct is. Cause now I do this routinely at Vive. Um, and we haven't really had anything go wrong to that level, but like, if there's something small, right? Like, let's say, um, I had one, I had one month where a distribution went out and it, the software we used had an error in it and labeled it as a different name than the investment that they were used to. And so we immediately proactively communicated with all of our investors about it. Hey, I'm so sorry. This is what happened. This is what you can expect next month. We've already fixed it. This is not an issue. Nothing to be panicked about you know, nothing to see here. Investors were happy with that. But I think when you shy away from communication and you shy away from being transparent, it breaks down trust from investors, right? Like mm -hmm. right now, everybody's making money in real estate. It's not that hard when you're in a bull run. It's what happens yeah. when things go wrong that really shows you what the operator you're invested with can do. Absolutely. I, I love that because a lot of times like it's the easy choice to kind of stay silent and it's yeah. so uncomfortable to go out and be like, I it don't is. know. And it's almost like that's what, that's like the right one. Cause it's the more comfortable it option, but it's really it's the opposite. It is. Yeah. I mean, with COVID, what we ended up saying was 
Okay. So we've never had a global pandemic. We don't know what that means. We don't know how it is going to affect us long-term. Mm-hmm. We believe in the asset. Here's where our fundamentals are. And we're going to, we're going to stay on top of it. And we're going to keep updating you even more so. So then what we did was we proactively increased communication. Um, we went from an email update to a monthly video call. And we did a monthly conference call for each investor in each asset. Um, and we started communicating like, here's occupancy, here's 60 day projected, 90 day projected, here's our bad debt, here's how we're handling the bad debt, here's how many evictions we've had, here are all the people we've reached out to to help us with rent, um, rental mm-hmm. assistance. So we kind of go through everything that we're doing and how we're looking at it globally so that investors knew that they could feel confident and comfortable that we are on top of it. We'll make the best decisions possible. And that really went over well with investors. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's a great takeaway for our audience just to make make sure you're over communicating. And also I think that like demystifies it for your investors because you guys are the the captains of the ship. You know, they want, you don't know. They they can't see where they're going. They don't know where they're going. So you got to make sure you let them know. Right. And I think too, just saying, I don't know is a reasonable answer in those Mm -hmm. circumstances and those situations. And I think, you know, too, I'll say, do it on video because I got Mm. so much positive feedback that people were like, okay, we initially got these emails. They were scary. We didn't really know, but seeing you, you were calm and you were confident, even though you didn't know, you knew that you would be able to figure it out. And that made me feel good. So I think doing it on video is like another key. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a gold nugget. Uh, I mean, I've never seen anyone send investor uh, updates on video, but you know, you can definitely tell something like how someone feels and what they're kind of not necessarily going through, but how they really feel about what they're saying through the body language. And, you know, when it's just through a cold email, you can't really tell. So I I definitely, that's a really gold. gold You're the leader. So like they they look up to you in that, in that moment. So I love that. I love that. Exactly right. Awesome. It is time for our speed round. Vina, are you ready? Okay. I think I'm ready. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right. Get, get warm. All right. All right. I'm ready. First one. What has been, and you touched on one, but if you want to touch on another, what has been a big learning lesson or failure, but we like to use the term learning lesson throughout your real estate (laughs) journey. And what did you take away from that experience? Oh my gosh. There's so many, so, so, so many. Um, I, so I think it's actually the one that we've been talking about positively, which is, um, if you find the right partners, you can do so much and you can scale so much faster. There's, you know, that saying from Warren Buffett, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I've had good partnerships. I've had bad partnerships. I've had questionable partnerships. And I think when you really find your groove of having a really solid partner, you know, for me, it's mm-hmm. my sister and Ellie. Um, we really have been able to do so much more than I ever thought possible together. That is awesome. And if there's, is there one thing that you're doing today that you weren't doing when you first started in real estate, but that's making a big impact in your business? Oh yeah. I mean, actually taking the time to put systems and processes together. So now anytime there's a change or a new process, we document everything and we always look for ways to automate with new technologies. We implement them as soon as possible to kind of reduce manual error. Awesome. Awesome. Um, if you could pick one book, whether it's business or, uh, personal book that's changed or been a game changer in your life, whether business or personal, uh, what would it be? Oh gosh, there's a lot. Cause I, I tend to reread the books that I really like. Um, so I really like Malcolm Gladwell books. I recently reread for like the fifth time outliers, um, or blink is another really good book of his kind of talks about like gut instinct and 
why we make decisions the way we make them. So I think that that is those, those two are good books. I, I don't know. I recommend only those though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ones. there's That's there's awesome. so many so many good ones this is like a bonus question but i'm just curious because you're, yeah. you're partnered with your sister and ellie so it's like an all-woman team can yeah. you just provide some expand on that like what is that like was that super intentional yeah. or did it just kind of happen naturally and no it just happened and it's awesome uh yeah. i i rarely get to work with women in this space even yeah. now you know other than ellie's team we just don't really get that opportunity very often and it's awesome too because our capital markets is uh, Jones Lang and LaSalle, Melissa Quinn. Um, she's in their Orlando office. So we have like a very heavily woman based team and it's, you know, happy accident, but we just believe in working with the best. And I firmly believe that you cannot be working with the best if it's all men or there's no minorities represented at the top there it's not possible that there are not the best within these underrepresented groups so absolutely um, we believe that diversity is a strength and i think um our investors have really loved working with women um i think it's just a different touch and a different ethos to interacting with us and how we run our companies and you know, I don't mind if someone underestimates us because <laughs> a little bit of a leg up. So there's, <laughs> I love that. I and love that. you're obviously killing it. So that, there's that Thank too. And, and yeah. to look to the future, what are you aiming to accomplish moving forward? And what's your long-term vision for yeah. five funds? Yeah. So I have twin three-year-olds, awesome. daughters, and twin yeah. three-year-olds. <laughs> yes. Wow. Congrats. Daughters. Thank He's you. a twin. Oh, you are. I don't okay. know if you yeah, knew that. Not so. <laughs> I think I knew that, but I, you're, are you identical or for yeah. identical? Yeah, we're identical. Oh, you're ident- My dad's identical too. That's awesome. Oh, gotcha. um, Didn't skip. Yeah. It runs in the family. Anyways. Yeah, my, my daughters are fraternal yeah. uh, okay. and very different in personality too. Mm-hmm. But my long-term vision is like that at least one of them wants to take over the company. I don't know if that'll really happen. Probably not. It's like a mm-hmm. pipe dream. But I really want, um, the reason I do this is because I want to leave a legacy for my kids. I want them to see that, you know, being a woman or being a minority doesn't stop them from being in the rooms that I'm in. Um, and so for me, again, that diversity and representation at the top is really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have an opportunity to make impactful change for equity at the top level with other companies we partner with and work with, not just our own company. And that's important to me. So that's why I, that's what I, I foresee is like Vive mm-hmm. continues to impact other companies and, you know, leave this world a better place than I found it. That is I love awesome. That. Yeah, I love that. You shared a ton of knowledge today. I really appreciate it. But if there was just one piece of advice that you'd want someone in the audience to walk away with from this episode, what would that be? Um, I feel like this is like a recent theme that I've been talking about and it's been coming up a lot in my life, which is proximity is power. Um, And so being, it's important that you're in the rooms that you need to be in. It's important that your friend circle is doing more than you. Like I always strive to be the, least successful and the dumbest one in my friend circle. And, you know, you need to continue being around people and being in proximity to people who don't think that, you know, an idea of having a billion dollar portfolio is ridiculous. They're like, oh, okay, how can I do that with you? Or how can I help you? Or here's what I did to get there. And so I think proximity is power and make sure you're in proximity to the right people and it'll help you kind of mm-hmm. add rocket fuel to your business. 
Oh, I love that and I 100% agree. We uh, we always say we hate being even remotely the smartest people. Like we love being the dumbest yeah. people in the room. There's so much <laughs> to learn. That's so fine with me too. It's like, you shouldn't be in rooms where people, your goals will intimidate them. Like I want totally. it the opposite. I want like, oh, I didn't even think that big. Let's go, you know? Yeah, right. Or why are you thinking so small? Exactly. And you know, like that's what my friends do now. Cause like some of my friends were in this text group together and they're like, okay, I, I need to buy a third plane before the end of the year. And I'm like, wait, what? I love <laughs> well, it. Me too. I hate when that happens. You know, like, those are definitely good group chats to be. I in. love it. That's awesome. Yeah. We're not there yet, but yeah. Yeah, but you're on your way. Yes. Exactly. I feel like there's so many other topics we could cover today. We not, we would love to have you on as a repeat guest, but if anyone in our audience wants to learn more about you or just follow you on your journey, where can they go to do that? So I'm a, a Vina Jetty on all social media, like Instagram. I'm on TikTok. Yes. Um, awesome. Yeah, I don't, I don't do like the dances <laughs> yet. Who knows yes. what I do as I get older, like into my old lady age, I might. <laughs> um, but no, I'm a, I am on TikTok. I'm on uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, yeah. all of the, all of the social media. Yeah, we've seen a lot of your content. We love it. Keep it up. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Vina. And thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Real Estate Monopoly. Please make sure to leave a five-star review and a comment down below. And guys, let's get out there and take action. Have a great rest of your day.